makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha, I can't do Chasha. Oh, it don't get your mouth hanging like an umbi. Oh, who topa? No, who paho you come? Taco skunskana umbi killer na yuha. Makakilil. I can't hunk a taco or each of you and get home on a hockey chill of money picked. Makakilil hockey. Betu washtelo chante washte na pechu zapilo le unkipiki he washtelo le ampetu ki tranga na washtelo ola kota yelo oyate hona umpi ohola uskati we chuni greetings and good day and welcome my relatives I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart and the whole world is a beautiful day it's good for all of us to be here let the people hear your voice respectfully and celebrate life this is first voices radio I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And uh, this is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio now in its 29th year broadcasting. And Liz Hill is its First Voices Radio's outstanding producer. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, and as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archives. And you can hear us internationally on Savizar Contemporary in Berlin and Potsdam, Germany. And from the book, uh, I'm going to read this intro just to get you an idea here. This is uh, First Voices Radio, and we bring many people onto First Voices who, who fit this format of being able to go forward, boldly forward, and because it's about the roots and, and really people, all peoples would, should understand this statement and why we're doing this. And I, I really want to start with something a little off topic, but yet related to what we were going to be talking about. It's, uh, it just brings in a sense to this. And uh, 
before I bring our first guest in, it's, uh, it is, it's playing Indian by Philip Deloria. It talks of many things such as the Boston Tea Party. And many people have used those ideas, if those of you who don't know about Indigenous folks here in the East Coast, uh, to shape a national identity in different areas and how original nations have reached to, to these imitations of their native dress, language, and rituals. And that has been somewhat compromised or appropriated. And this is the, the simple part of it. This is the outer, outer, the clothes of, of the emperor, so to speak. And even some whites played Indian in order to claim an Aboriginal American identity. And all throughout the 19th century, uh, fraternal orders allowed men to rethink the ideas of revolution, consolidate national power, and write nationalist literary epics. But by the 20th century, playing Indian helped nervous city dwellers deal with modernist concerns in nature, authenticity, and Cold War anxiety, and various forms of relativism. And I'm, I'm quoting, uh, paraphrasing uh, Philip Deloria, who points out, however, that throughout American history, the creative uses of Indianness has become interwoven with con- conquest and dispossession of Native people, and has been fraught with ambivalence for white Americans who would idealize and villainize the Native, and for Natives who were both humiliated and empowered by those cultural exercises. Exercises. So I'm going to go forward here and say that imagining Indians has helped generations of white Americans define, mask, and even evade paradoxes stemming from simultaneous construction and destruction of these Native peoples, of Native peoples in general. And uh, Americans have created powerful identities that have never been fully secure. And a lot of people fee- feel insecure if and through the 29 years that I've been hosting First Voices Radio is that it's always been about making sure that the tree roots, no matter who is looking at, uh, I would say, the cultural appropriate appropriation of our peoples. It comes from all peoples who can point out, look, this is not feeling good morally to to Native peoples, uh, even to non-Native peoples. And I like to bring that forward. This is more or less my opinion and why I need to bring people along like this next guest, Daryl LaRue, who is an associate professor in the Department of Social Justice and Community Studies at St. Mary's University in Tribuktuk, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And he's written a book, Distorted Descent, Distorted Descent, White Claims to Indigenous Identity, and explores the, the many efforts made by white Americans and Canadians to claim an Indigenous identity. And I'd like to welcome you back to First Voices Radio, Daryl. That was a great intro. Thank you. Part of that is understanding, understanding after reading your piece here, the aspirational descent and creation of family lore for race shifting in the Northeast. And we're not just talking about the United States, but we're trickling up into Canada or trickling down from Canada because a lot of Native people have been displaced and other people have come in and Mm -hmm. taken those places. Even in the mines, I can say 60% of Americans have a drop of Native blood because of that migration migratory routes that they've taken from the East Coast to the West Coast. And people don't know this, but if if I had one-sixteenth of Native in me, I I know I don't have the Indigenous experience. Yet that one-sixteenth of me fills the the, the fifteen-sixteenth of emptiness to say I am Native and this is how Natives act. And I know this is not true because this is my experience, and I know that person is not indigenous because there's an energy. For me, there's an energy. There, there is something there that tells you that person is not native, simply because uh, the energy that comes off of her, a person is not the experience of an indigenous person. Um, so right. that, that's me. 
And so now mm-hmm. I want to go into this race shifting. It seemed like it's mm-hmm. more or less a demo, demographic uh, uh, phrase, so to speak, but yet it has much more to do with that. Would you, would you bring your thoughts in on this, Daryl? Sure, yeah. I mean, that concept is this concept that I borrow from an anthropologist named Sir K. Sturm, who wrote a book, I think it was published in 2011, called Becoming Indian. And it's specifically about the um, the phenomenon in the United States of people, uh, white people particularly, claiming to be Cherokee, and how widespread that is. Uh, so I, I kind of borrow this concept from her to uh, look at my case. And, and, and what I study is French Canadians. So French Canadians live across Canada. They also um, immigrated in the 1800s en masse. Um, so estimates are between 500,000 and 750,000 to New England. Um, so that's that's sort of the population I'm looking at and how uh, there's been a movement uh, for French Canadians or Franco-Americans, if they've lived in the U.S. for several generations, um, to claim an Indigenous identity based on long-ago genealogical um, uh, research, uh, research into genealogical history. So essentially, like you were saying, uh, when it comes to uh, French Canadians, French descendants, um, we, we share a, a small pool of ancestors before 1650, and there are a few Indigenous women in that pool. Um, so oftentimes people will conduct research, find that they have uh, an Indigenous woman in their ancestry born in 1625, 1630. I have three Algonquin women in my own ancestry. Um, both my parents are French-Canadian, and um, they'll then use that to transform themselves, create a series of organizations. In my book, I outline how some of these organizations are created to put a stop to actual people, Indigenous people's land claims and territorial claims in parts of Canada. Um, and I think what um, we're going to talk a little bit more about today is, is how the, this um, process is also happening in the United States, so how it's, how it's happening in particular in Vermont and New Hampshire with um, these uh, new, and I'm saying this in quotation marks, Abenaki tribes that have been created um, essentially since the 1980s. Um, and uh, yeah, there four of them are state-recognized now in the state of Vermont, and there's another large um, one of these organizations in New Hampshire. So I've conducted research into those organizations, and um, their members have no Abenaki ancestry whatsoever, um, but they claim to be Abenaki, and those claims are generally accepted. I'm wondering, Daryl LaRue, why, um, this is a question from a listener um, who knew that you were coming on and they they wanted to ask this question and said, why do these white French people feel or have a need to exaggerate their ancestry, self-identity to the point of misrepresentation? And I know that you have uh, ancestry of Native people in your blood some way or way back, but Mm -hmm. the fact Mm -hmm. is that you understand the difference is is that that experience is not Indigenous, it's white. So that that is the question, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's very common in French-Canadian families, besides this turn to ancestry, to also have what you were mentioning earlier, family lore, so stories in the family. And um, I, I read those stories as about um, trying to justify one's place in, in a land that is not ours, right? Um, so I, if we look at the claims being made by the organizations um, in Vermont and New Hampshire, that's what those claims are based on. They're based on stories that people may have promoted in, at, cer- at a certain period in the 20th century, French uh, Canadian immigrants were really, they were relatively badly treated 
um, by the sort of Yankee majority in um, white Protestant majority in Vermont, New Hampshire, and other places in New England. And so people look to the past, read that discrimination as somehow evidence that it must be something that was due to racism or the fact that they were indigenous, when in fact they don't have proof to that. So these people who are claiming this today are doing it um, partly to recoup their ancestors and their experiences um, and to give themselves a place in New England um, that allows them to access different forms of power and privilege that they may not have had otherwise. Um, for instance, uh, there are a number of, you know, academics who work very closely with these so-called tribes. Uh, there are also many of them who are um, members of these so-called tribes. And so they get scholarships from a young age um, for reserved for Indigenous students. Um, they're given grants. They're given all kinds of different awards uh, reserved for Indigenous scholars. And so their careers advance um, because of their claims, which, again, are, are, are false in the sense that they don't actually have the um, the background that they claim to have, and they're part of this sort of race shifting movement. Daryl Larue, you know, I'm I'm sensing some standard of mm. uh, a default. We have to default to the Western or to the powers that be, the American government, Canadian government, in mm -hmm. order in order to achieve our identity. And I think here in the United States, at the Bureau Bureau of Indian Affairs, you know, the enrolls a degree of blood. But when it comes to community, a lot of people are, are, are using this argument, and and even that mm -hmm. is is being sp spread around like like butter, and and often it's it's a thin argument because when it comes down to it, you know the people do know among ourselves who is and who is not, but it seems like yeah. a political I don't know how do you say it identity politics because it has to do with that same government identifying who is native now your research that I've read goes yeah. back even further trickling down and going up into Canada and and as we mm -hmm. had in our previous program we talked about the Métis and how they have displaced the identity of native peoples but actually have acquired land to say that this is we are indigenous this is why we have land but it, it, the same process has been happening ever since before the revolution here in, in the United mm -hmm. States. And that race shifting that you talk about and, yeah. and the whole ideas that, that I'm trying to say is what happens to, to the moral character of people um, once, you know, because you would have to face that yourself personally. What happens to the mm -hmm. moral character of people as a person? And I, I think you know where I'm going with this. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I as as in terms of my research, I, I generally try to shy away from making you know uh, judgments on individual character or individual motivations. I, I do think that you know if we if we understand this as a political movement, um, so you know these specific quote unquote tribes in New Hampshire and and uh, Vermont. And we, we sort of have to understand, like, the context for when it rises. So we see it happens really the first meeting, um, and this is on the records by the people who are there, the first meeting of one of these organizations happens in the mid-1970s around a kitchen table in the home of the man who becomes the so-called chief of the first organization, which is now called the uh, Missisquan Nation, the Abenaki Nation of Vermont. Um, they had a different name at the time, the uh, St. Francis Sokoki Band of Abenakis of Vermont. 
1976, you see that they form, they form a group. There's really just a few men who get together and decide that they're going to be Abenaki. Um, and that's happening at a time in the United States where it actually becomes quite common for white people to look for um, a, a type of identity that will somehow allow them to, um, I guess you could say, avoid or evade their own responsibility in racism. So that's when we see this rise of what we call um, white ethnic minorities. So, you know, white people start looking for their Irish, Scottish, Polish, um, German, Greek uh, ancestors. And, and you see these hyphenated white identities, which, which weren't really there beforehand. And that's because of the, the civil rights movement and how there's sort of this, um, if you will, this, this way in which racism gets raised. And so how white people respond, or many white people, but there's this movement in U.S. society to say, well, we're not racist. And one of the ways you can get away from that is claiming that you're also a minority. So part of that movement, and I explain this in this paper that I just submitted um, following some research on these uh, organizations in Vermont and uh, New Hampshire, is that people, white people, also start claiming that they're indigenous in a way that they hadn't before. And so in that paper, I cite some research into this um, that some sociologists did in the 1980s and 90s, and you see an incredible increase in the census of the number of individuals who check the box for a white racial identity, but also check the box for Native American ancestry. So that in the 1970 census, that number is around 4 million white people, and then into the 90s, we have over 20 million people who are saying that they're white, but they, that they have Native American ancestry. And those people often will get categorized as Native American, depending on how the, the data is being used. So you see that there's an interest by white people to get away from any accountability in racism in the wake of the, um, of the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. And one of the results of that is what happens in Vermont and New Hampshire. There's a, there are groups of white people who decide that since there isn't a recognized indigenous population in those states, that they will become the recognized, quote unquote, indigenous population. Even though Abenaki people continue to live in those states, even though they're based primarily just across the border in two Abenaki communities called Odenak and Wolenak. Once you experience these two communities, you say, is there their viewpoint about these, uh, I don't know, these pseudo groups in Vermont and mm -hmm. that area? What, what is their thoughts on, on that? Yeah, so I mean, I, I first came across, I was, I've been doing research on this in Canada, like you said, um, the sort of Eastern Métis movement, which is essentially, again, white French Canadians um, claiming to be Indigenous. So I, I kind of had a sense of how that worked, and I was invited by... Um, some, uh, some people at Odenak, which is the main um, Abenaki community. And the Abenaki are people who populated most of New England. And through wars and through dispossession and displacement, generally headed north and west um, and into Quebec uh, and, and are now mostly registered both at Odenak and Wolanak. At Odenak, there are over 3,000 um, people who are registered, many of whom still live in New York State and in parts of New England, but most of whom live in Quebec and other parts of Canada. So just to answer your question, uh, 
I was invited to talk about my research and they wanted to know what I, if I had ever considered looking into what um, was happening in Vermont, New Hampshire. I hadn't just because I, I didn't know what was happening there. They shared a lot of documents with me and also it became clear to me that people in Odenak were quite upset about the claims being made by these organizations and how those claims were taken at face value oftentimes by the white power brokers, including academics like anthropologists, but also politicians in Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, and so that was one meeting. I've had a series of other meetings with Abenaki people there and also who live in the United States. And that really kind of got me thinking uh, about how what's happening is whether, you know, you're French-Canadian or you're Quebecois in, in Canada or you're Franco-American in Vermont or New Hampshire, you're doing the same thing in terms of using a particular ancestral history that we share because we're all literally descendants of the, the first French settlers um, in, um, in New France, so-called New France, present-day Quebec for the most part. Um, so, yeah, I, that's really what got me looking at what was happening south of the border and really opened my eyes to, to that process. Uh, and, so the, and, and since then, and I found out that the people at Odenac have been very clear for the past 20 years that they oppose these movements. Um, they've been clear to um, politicians in Vermont and also New Hampshire, also to academics. Uh, they've been uh, make, they've made a number of statements, public statements, written letters um, to government officials because you know these organizations, these so-called tribes, they have human remains returned to them from museums and other other bodies officially, not to the actual Abenaki people, but to white people who are claiming to be Abenaki. Um, and so you could imagine that as Abenaki people in Quebec, that's something that's really upsetting. You know, thinking about how these individuals are, are now not just the spokespeople, but are um, seen as legitimately Abenaki and have the remains of um, their ancestors return. And they're not even their ancestors. These people aren't related to them in any way. And speaking of ancestry, just a quick question before you have to go. Is uh, you also yeah. sought to emulate anthropologist Kim Talbert, a guest of ours and friend of yeah. ours, use of virtual ethnography in her study of high-profile genetic geology. Tell us about that. Yeah. So in my, in my book, um, I, what I did uh, is I went to I went to online genealogy forums. Um, so there's all kinds of different forums, as you can imagine. And obviously, a lot of this operates on social media now, so Facebook groups and, and other types of groups. But um, there are still some quite active genealogy forums. Sometimes they're uh, corporations like Ancestry that host them or others. Uh, sometimes they're more public organizations. And I, I studied, uh, I guess it would end up being about 16 or 17 years of online genealogy forums that are geared specifically towards uh, those who descend from the early French settlers, so what I call French descendants. And many of those people, like I said, live in the United States. There's anywhere from three to four million of them in the United States. Some would say five or six. I go with a bit of a more conservative figure. And there's about 13 million in, in Canada. So it's a big population of people, and the genealogical records are quite readily available. So there's lots of these forums where people will just come on and ask random questions about an ancestor, but there are also people who come on and specifically ask um, about, you know, Indigenous ancestors, Indigenous ancestry or identity. So in my book, I highlight some of the debates that happen on these forums um, and also just some of the, the general types of requests that people make. And so I, I found out some of the ways that ancestors are thought of 
and also how they're recreated. And you brought this up early in the interview, this term um, aspirational descent is something that I try to develop there in the book. And that's where um, individuals who can't find an indigenous ancestor in their, in their, you know, in their history, they'll make one up. So there's all of this sort of um, infrastructure online uh, dedicated to turning French women into quote unquote indigenous women. And that's something I didn't know about before. And it's also something that people in Vermont and New Hampshire uh, who are part of these so-called tribes also do quite readily. This is all very interesting. I'd like to even continue this sometime in the immediate future, sure. Daryl, because it, 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 I want to find out more about, you know, the actual science, the, the questions mm-hmm. that, that are remaining un, unanswered here, uh, because it's a short interview. But I want to thank you yeah. for being here. And uh, the name of your book is? Distorted Descent, uh, White Claims to Indigenous Identity. That's right. And is that yeah, out? And it's, it's widely available. It's yeah, really, it, okay. it got published in the fall 2019. It's widely available in bookstores, libraries, and also online. Very interesting. Okay, thank you very much, Daryl LaRue, um, for being here and bringing this, uh, uh, these thoughts to us. And, of, of course, there will be controversy, and that's what we expect. <laughs> so thank you so much, <laughs> for much for the energy. All Thanks. right. Okay. Thank you so much. Yes. Have a good day. You too. Take care. This is First Voices Radio. My name is Tio Ghost Torse, and uh, I want to go to um, an, an, a friend of ours who just passed uh, not too long ago, a few days ago. And um, in that uh, thought process of where she has stood among Native people is, is a very a long process of activism advocacy. And her name was Laura Waterman Whitstock, and she entered the spirit world in the morning of January 16th. And we remember her as a great mother and remembered by her grandchildren as the world's greatest grandmother, and uh, she was a friend, a confident, a mentor, um, and 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 her friends have come out, and she is an enrolled member. Now, this is the difference here. This is an enrolled member of the Seneca Nations of Indians, as Indians is called, the Heron Clan, and was born in the Cattaraugus Indian Reservation in New York on September 11th, 1937, to Isaac Waterman and Clorinda Waterman Nee Jackson, both long in the spirit world. She had brothers, sisters, uh, yeah, brothers, and, um, you know, she, she attended school and learned much of Native Hawaiian culture at one point and joined her mother, Cleo, in San Francisco, who, which is her favorite city. But I want to say that the, 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 the uh, times of the 1969 Alcatraz takeover and other places where a journalist was needed, Laura Waterman Whitstock, um, had come into play. She started writing and became an advocate, Native American political journal, the Legislative Review, and she lived in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota, Minneapolis, and St. Paul. And she managed a media review program focused on Native perspectives for National Indian Education Association. And she headed the American Indian Press Association and took on the Red Schoolhouse in St. Paul as a personal project, St. Paul, excuse me, as a personal project, often picking up children in school van as well as raising funds. So she was on the ground in in the uh, tree roots and the grassroots and helped found and direct Megizi Communications which was destroyed um, this this past uh, by, by 
I'd say racist people, supremacists, and is still educating children to this day. Even as she goes on, her effect has educated people. She directed the Heart of the Earth Survival School in Minneapolis, and for over four decades, she has been part of the independent television service, Native American Public Tele- Telecommunications, American Indian Cancer Foundation, so many accolades here, and uh, I want to just pay honor to her and give her a few seconds and remember Laura Waterman Whitstock, who passed away a couple of days ago. And um, thank you so much, Laura. We had you as a guest, and also I was there as her guest, and I'd like to thank you for your time here. You will be missed.
Long Time Gone by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, that is, again, Long Time Gone. Um, really giving that in honor of Laura Waterman Woodstock, who passed a few days ago. So our next guest, we're going to go right into our next guest is Max Wilbert, who is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide. He's been part of a grassroots political work for nearly 20 years, and he's author of two books and recently forthcoming um, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It, which will be published this year by Monkfish. And he's he's uh, authored essays in the Earth Island Journal, Counterpunch, Dissent, Dissident Voice, and translated into several languages it has. And he's involved in both fighting Canadian and Utah star, tar sands and uh, in resisting industrial-scale water extraction and deforestation in Nevada, and advocating for the last remaining wild buffalo in Yellowstone in solidarity work with indigenous communities in British Columbia and in campaigns against sexual violence. So last Friday, Max and a group of activists launched an occupation of a proposed mine, a mine in northern Nevada. Lithium Americas Corporation plans to rip to rip, to gouge open 5,000 acres of this land to extract lithium for consumer products. And for more information, including how to join Max and others, please go to protecthackerpass.org. And I want to welcome you back to First Voices Radio, Max. Always uh, interesting to hear what you have to say about the current uh, madness happening. Thank you, Kyokasen. It's really good to be here with you. Yes, let us know about this this mine, this Lithium Americas Corporation, and why you are there and looking to look for this occupation against this mine. Yeah, I'll start off by saying that, you know, when I was a teenager, I thought that electric cars and solar panels were going to save the world. That's what I read, you know, and so when I would hear about the ecological crisis that we're in, in terms of global warming species extinctions, you know, all these uh, things that are a reflection of our lack of harmony with nature. Uh, I, I would get scared and I would look for solutions. And the information that was being given to me said that the solution was these type of technologies. And in the years since then, my, I've gotten new information and my position on these issues has completely changed. And the mine project that is proposed for this area right here in Northern Nevada, we're close to the Oregon border, just North of Winnemucca. The, the, the lithium mine that is proposed for this area would destroy a, a, an incredibly important uh, area of habitat. And so I look at these projects. Now I look at these technologies and I think there's not, much difference between this and a mountaintop removal coal mine. This is really the same old business as usual. And uh, it's a case of greenwashing where these companies are trying to, uh, you know, do very good marketing and tell us that these projects are green when in reality, it's just as earth destroying as any other industrial mining project that you can imagine. 
you would think that because of, of the remoteness that people, you know, the, these mining companies and extraction corporations, uh, of course, they deliberately pick this, but they know that it will, it will be kind of too little too late before the media or any kind of press picks it up. But your, your venture is to bring it out to people on how delicate even the ecology there is. Would you let us know what we are looking forward to in, 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 in thinking about occupation, but also the education that, that you just told us about when you were a kid? You were so, you know, you were saying, this is, we're, we're going to save the earth by converting to, you know, solar panels and basically lithium to, to save really the, the, the hole that we dug for the lithium and it doesn't make sense to mm. us. So let, let me know about your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that you can save the planet by destroying it. I think that's a contradiction. And this is a, this is an important issue. You know, this place right here is important. I'm, I'm on the phone with you right now. I'm sitting at our camp at about 5,000 feet in Thacker Pass, Nevada, uh, there's a, there's big mountain ranges to either side of us. And I'm looking out across a uh, beautiful old sage, sage, uh, sagebrush. And this land that I'm looking at right now, as I'm on the phone with you is what would be destroyed for this open pit mine. And this is very important habitat for the sage grouse, the greater sage grouse. They're an animal that has been almost wiped out since colonization, 97 to 99% of them are gone. And this area right here, this, this region is the best population of sage grouse remaining in the entire state of Nevada. Up, up to 8% of the global population left of these birds lives right in this area. And this mine would destroy critical habitat for them. It would cut off migratory routes for the pronghorn antelope who have been crossing this path for thousands upon thousands of years. It would, uh, it would endanger the Lahontan cutthroat trout, who are a, they're a threatened species of fish who live in the rivers, uh, in the river basin just to the west of us. And the pollution from this mine getting into the groundwater and flowing down into these rivers has the potential to really harm these rare cutthroat trout. And then there's also even an issue of extinction potential because there's a rare species of snail that lives only in freshwater springs in Thacker Pass. Its entire home in the world is 14 springs coming out of the base of these mountains right here behind me as I speak to you. And it can only survive there. Those animals have never been able to be transplanted to another place because they're so perfectly adapted to the springs that they were born in and that they have lived in for generation after generation. And there's a potential that those springs could be... A, could be dewatered. They could go dry because of this mine because they plan to pump out uh, 850 million gallons of water a year. And that's just in their first stage of mining before they even ramp up and get bigger as they go into their second stage. So there's a lot of issues here. And, and we think this project is not just important for the beings, you know, our kin, our relatives who live here in Thacker Pass, but it's also important symbolically because we're being sold a lie, like I said. And I think it's really important that we examine these issues in depth. And hopefully people will come to the conclusion that I have, which is 
that we can't rely on industrial technology to fix the problems largely caused by industrial technology. Max Wilbert, the land that you are occupying, that the man, that the Canadian developer, Lithium Nevada, um, that land is, is it Paiute, Northern Paiute, or is it Shoshone, Western Shoshone? You know, I'm not sure. I think this territory was occupied by both Northern Paiute and Western Shoshone. I believe in the, um, in, in parts of uh, the territory, these groups uh, are, rel- you know, they're relatives, obviously, and they, uh, the, uh, the territorial use was, was um, concurrent. And um, so this, this area, Thacker Pass, was used traditionally by the indigenous peoples of this area. Yes. There's a lot of obsidian here. Uh, we've seen that just walking around the site, and people would come here and gather obsidian and uh, gather food as well. Um, this was a pretty important uh, travel area between the, what's now called the, the Quinn River Valley uh, to the east of us and the Kings River Valley to the west of us. So th- there's a long history of occupation and people living in and enjoying this area, and, and that's under threat as well, that, that historical uh, that historical site and, and culturally important site. I'm pretty sure Sarah Winnemucca was an ancestor of that area. I think that's why Winnemucca was named after her. I believe she was Paiute. But the Canadian Lithium Nevada developer, Lithium Nevada, has has his plan, and it really sounds nice that they will make for a carbon neutral open pit mine operation in service to a larger green community, a hungry economy for lithium. And uh, can you straighten that sentence out for me? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you look in the planning documents submitted to the government for their permit, the mining company says outright that they will be burning over 11,000 gallons of diesel fuel every single day. And that's just at the mine site. That's just right here. That doesn't include processing facilities and fuel that would be burned elsewhere, which is another more than 10,000 gallons of diesel fuel a day. Uh, You know, the second point that I think is very important is the key ingredient in their process. They're going to dig up the earth. They plan to dig up the earth unless we stop them. And, they have to refine the, the, the soil into lithium because it's only present in very, very tiny quantities scattered throughout the soil here. And to do that, they plan to use a huge amount of sulfuric acid. And their source of sulfur to make the sulfuric acid is waste from oil refineries. So I think those two facts, the fuel consumption and the fact that they're completely reliant on a, a, a product coming out of oil refineries for their process tells you that any claims that this is a green mine or a carbon neutral mine are just lies. They're deceptions designed to help market this project and sell it to people and make them think that it is green because it's a lot easier to you know, bypass resistance and get people to go along with a project like this if you can pretend that it's not going to harm the planet. But that's not true. I want to make sure that people know that this lithium is in demand for the electric vehicle batteries, cars and energy storage systems, large and small. So we're talking from the little batteries to the, the, you know, the cars. And I wanted to understand also that the mine is promising, as, as it does everywhere it goes, that these jobs and uh, that they will last for at least a third of them will last for 
46 years of this life of life of the project. And as you mentioned earlier, 14 springs were going to, you know, um, basically the aquifer in that area. And maybe there hasn't been enough study or, or understanding of that. With with your research, Max Wilbert and Will Falk, who is also camped with you at the Mindset, you're working to get others to join you. What would make people want to come out to this cold, high desert area in Nevada? <laughs> yeah, I got to say, we're a little crazy to be camping up here in January. But, you know, it's incredibly beautiful out here. We woke up this morning to a very calm, still morning. It was very cold last night, but the wind died completely after a very windy uh, yesterday. And, uh, you know, the first thing we heard this morning was the birds chirping and then a couple coyotes talking to each other across this mountain pass here. And we get up and we get to watch the sunrise over the mountain. All we hear is quiet, the sounds of nature. And, uh, you know, Will and I were talking when we showed up a couple days ago and just talking about how the stress of life within industrial civilization starts to fall away when you get into a place like this, when you disconnect a little bit and start to connect with the land, uh, you know, connect with our, our roots, our relatives, our, our, our ancestry, you know, which goes back, you know, no matter what lineage you come from, your ancestors were land-based peoples at some point. And so, many of us, most of us have lost that real connection. So just being out here every day, being in touch with the weather, the cycles, the sunrise, the moon, uh, the moon is getting bigger right now and the stars are fading a little bit every night, but they're still incredibly bright, uh, dark, starry nights out here. Um, and then, you know, maybe most importantly, beyond the personal level, we're here because it's meaningful. And so, we're hoping that people will come join us. Uh, you know, we're hoping people will come bring us supplies. If they're uh, only available for a short trip, just come stop by for a couple hours or a day or a weekend. And we're also hoping that people will join us for a longer term occupation of this site. We don't know exactly when the mining company plans to dig. They are still waiting on a few permits from the state of Nevada, and we're going to be working to build opposition and pressure uh, to to try and deny them those permits. But, you know, our hope is that as we move further into spring and as the weather gets nicer, we can get more and more people out here to tell this mining company no, to say this place must be protected. So if people are interested in getting in touch with us or learning more about this project, check out the website. You mentioned it already, but I'll say it one more time, protectthackerpath.org. And that's Thacker, T-H-A-C-K-E-R. And we're speaking with Max Wilbert, who is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide in grassroots political work for nearly 20 years. And the, the book forthcoming, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It, will be published this year by Monkfish. And um, you probably expected this next question. Today is Inauguration Day for the American government. And the turnover from uh, administration that just kind of rammed through a lot of, you know, you know, just wiped out a lot of environmental protection laws. Um, now we are into the seriousness now of a new, another change in administration. Is there and will there, or do you expect any change in at least, uh, you know, immediately to the mining? I know he's... Uh, 
Biden, Joe Biden, is going to nix the KXL pipeline, Keystone pipeline. But does that extend into the mining? Because the new world, the new horizon is lithium. What do you see is being prioritized here? Well, I really think, Jokasen, that the destruction of the planet and the exploitation of the natural world is, is firmly bipartisan. Both of the political parties, you know, you could call them Democrats and Republicans, or you could say they're two different segments of the capitalist party, of the colonialist party. Um, they both rest firmly on a foundation of continuing extraction, continuing this American way of life, which is based on overconsumption, imperialism, military dominance of the world, uh, interfering in other people's elections and other people's democratic processes around the world. Uh, so we're seeing a situation where Trump really fast-tracked this project. He and the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, under his management, under his uh, leadership, fast-tracked this project uh, over the opposition of local communities. And uh, Biden is likely to release some sort of plan to address climate change that we expect will rely almost entirely on lithium mining, on solar panels, on wind turbines, on these technologies which don't fundamentally address that human disconnection with the planet. They don't get to the root of the problem. There are these very superficial, quote-unquote, solutions that aren't actually going to solve the fundamental issues that we're facing. And that's exactly why they're popular with those in power because it's profitable, because business as usual can continue with these green technologies. And just like we see on the Republican side, we see pandering to politicians from the, uh, pandering to donors from the fossil fuel industry. On the Democratic side, we see pandering to business interests who are involved in these sort of renewable energy technologies. And there's a lot of money to be made if you're willing to destroy the planet. And that's what we're here to fight against. We're here to say, you know, we need to completely change our ethical relationship and our framework uh, of how we relate to the natural world and to the, the rest of the life forms who, with, with whom we share this planet. And First Voices Radio is here to, and, and has always been understanding of, you know, even as you are paying attention to the earth, anyone who's there feels the land and, and why it must be protected. And, and you, you describe the scene of the birds and the sunshine and the land and sagebrush. And I've been to places where mining technologies have come in and just, you know, wreck, wreaked havoc and destroyed any kind of ecosystem as gentle as it is in a desert. People think you have to be, yes, you have to be hardy to live out there, but the, the earth itself is very sensitive. And, and I know what you're doing. I, I I, you know, lift my hand up for you and thank you for, for your ideas and thoughts and for being there. And I want people to show up. And one more question before you go is uh, Bright Green Lies and how the environmental movement lost its way, what we can do about it. There seems to be the question, and yet we know that the environmental movement lost its way. And I could give many examples, but I just want your thoughts on how it lost its way and what, are, or what can the environmental do about it? Decades ago, if you asked people why they were part of the environmental movement, they often would have told you, I'm here to protect the forest. I'm here to protect the coral reefs. I'm here to protect the meadows and the grasslands. 
I'm here to protect the water. And often today in the mainstream environmental movement, you ask people why they're part of the movement and they will tell you, I'm here to save civilization. I'm here to save this, this society that we live in. And I think this is in many ways a, a consequence of the focus on global warming, which is a very serious problem. I don't mean to downplay the seriousness of global warming at all. But many people don't realize that global warming is a symptom of a much deeper problem that goes back much further into history. It's that, that human disconnection with the planet, that lack of harmony, that, that break with the natural world. You know, and, and of course, I don't need to tell you and your listeners that we have seen thousands and thousands of examples of people all over the planet throughout human history living in a sustainable way, living in balance with the natural world around them. And so many environmentalists today are trying to save exactly that culture, which is the problem, that culture of civilization, which is the culture of living out of balance. Very well stated, Max Wilbert. Thank you again. And it's good to know that you're on the land and your feet are from that land, giving us the energy of that land. And I think it's really, as you say, as you maybe alluded to, but I would say to find peace with Earth will stop the wars and, you know, even the extraction corporations, because I think that's one thing that we haven't found is humans, at least those who have come over here after 1492. They've lost a piece with the earth, a relationship with it. And this is why we use the words connection all the time. And yet, the, you know, the birds and all the animals you see there have always been related because they know they are at peace with the earth, and that's contentment. So I'd like to thank you, Max, um, for being here, for bringing us. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, okay? Thank you so much, Jokas, and I hope you all have a great day. We, we will, thank you. And this is First Voices Radio. That is Max Wilbert, who is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide, and a new book, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It, which will be published this year by Monkfish, and you can also go find out, and if you really want to go out there, check the, the website out, protectthackerpass.org, protectthackerpass.org. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghost Horse, and uh, this is After the Gold Rush. Katie Pruitt. Well, I dreamed I saw the knights in armor come singing something about a queen. There were peasants singing and drummers drumming and the archers split the tree. There was a fair, fair blower to the sun that was floating on the
us say.